Uh, in just a moment, we'll start in Romans chapter 9. And let me just remind you guys as we get started here tonight that you do have a Colossians exam, and that is due this Wednesday. Uh, we do have class Tuesday and Wednesday. We'll be continuing in Matthew on Tuesday, but then Garrett is going to be teaching you Ephesians on Wednesday at 6 o'clock. So be sure you're ready for both of those classes. Um, if anybody has a request, I would really enjoy singing the song. Uh, let me know. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us tonight because we're in Romans 9. We could really use, well, could, we need God's help on every chapter, but uh, yeah, Romans 9 usually comes with a decent amount of, of uh, questions and much-needed explanation. So we're going to ask God to help us. But in the meantime, if uh, you would like to put a request in just quickly, and hopefully by the time we're done praying, I'll see the request, and maybe we'll sing a song and then get into the lesson. Father, thank you this evening. What a privilege it is to be able to open up the Word of God and study once again. And Lord, as, as I've just mentioned, we, we always need your guidance. We always need your help. It's, it's not as if we can understand uh, this book just through the, our natural senses, God. We believe that there's something, something special about this book beyond uh, the human mind. Father, we believe the Spirit of God is behind this, that uh, you are the author and finisher of our faith. So guide us tonight, please. I pray that you give me clarity of mind and just the right words. And, oh Lord, might I thank you for saving us. Thank you for coming down to this, this earth and dying in our place. And we look forward, oh God, with great excitement to the day that you come again. Please, Lord, please come even, even tonight, even before this lesson is over. Might we hear the trumpet sound. Lord, we're tired of this lockdown, and that would be a great way to end it. So, Father, we, we pray that you let the Lord come and fetch us soon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 9, and we'll get started tonight. I can assure you that we are not going to finish Romans 9 in, in one evening. Uh, much like Romans 8, Romans 8, uh, we took our time. There was just too much in it that uh, I don't want to speed through. Same thing with Romans 9. There, there are so many things to deal with in this chapter. Um, if we had time, it'd be nice to just go through it all because it does, it, it, it works well as, as a unit. Um, but I don't want to rush. So we're going to do quite a bit of, of turning to and from in the Scripture. So keep your fingers ready. Let me give you the outline for tonight. Uh, starting in Romans 9... Paul directs his attention towards Israel. He be, he's going to answer the question, what is God doing now with the nation of Israel? That's chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in chapter 9, we're looking especially at, at why God and how God chose Israel. So I would call chapter 9 God's plan for Israel. Chapter 10, we're going to see how the gospel reaches them. And then in chapter 11, we'll see that they, even though they are temporarily put aside, they are still God's chosen people corporately, right, as a nation. And we'll discuss that as, as we progress. So chapter 9, God's plan for Israel, part 1, uh, four parts to this chapter. Peop, the people of Israel need to be saved. The people of Israel need to be saved. That's verses 1 to 5. I believe we'll see that clearly. 
the, the question did arise, especially, well, it, it even exists still today, but in the early church, if Israel is God's chosen nation, then are they automatically in? So Paul's going to begin to deal with that. Verses 6 to 13, part 2. Promise versus good works. You might even make that plural. Promises versus good works. That's verses 6 to 13. And then part 3. Predestination is fair. Predestination is fair. Uh, Paul's going to answer that question. He, as he's done throughout the book of Romans, right? When he presents a, a certain truth, then he knows that some of the enemies of the faith were prone to latching on to that truth and running too far or, or spinning it, twisting it in, in, in a way that it wasn't intended to be. So we're, we're going to discuss, and he will explain, verses 14 to 23, predestination is fair. And then to sum up the chapter, verses 24 to 33, part 4, the people of God by faith. The people of God by faith. All right, so let's get into the chapter itself. Verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Paul felt no guilt or hesitation uh, with what he was about to say. He had complete inner peace about the statement he was going to make. Uh, and you'll see Paul do this on a few occasions in the New Testament, where he says, I say the truth, I lie not. We might say it's something like, no, no, really, I really mean this. I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. Serious. Uh, uh, genuine. <laughs> I love how the South Africans say genuine. I would say genuine. Here, people just say genuine. Genuine. <laughs> but either way, you get the point. Really. Because what follows is such an incredible and almost unbelievable type of statement Paul prefaces those statements with, really, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm telling the truth. And I don't feel bad about saying such a, uh, you know, a comment. I, I like the one, I believe it's in 1 Timothy, where Paul, or 2 Timothy, I, I think it's 1 Timothy. Paul says, I, I, I'm not lying. I say the truth. God called me to be a preacher. And I often think, you know, for Paul, that, that was an amazing statement. He went from being let's call it a terrorist of sorts, right? A Christian hater, a persecutor, a blasphemer to the greatest, uh, you know, missionary that's ever lived, in, you know, since the time of Jesus. So uh, there was an amazing, incredible statement. And he's about to make one here. So the Holy Ghost, whenever Paul says this, he doesn't feel any grief from the Spirit of God. It's not as if he's going too far with what he's saying. Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Paul says, I want you guys to know I have a great, I have a serious burden that weighs on my heart. Verse 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I just want you to see what his great burden was. He was deeply concerned about the nation of Israel. Now, why would he have to preface this by saying, I'm, I'm not lying. Serious. Genuine. I really mean this. Because there were a lot of people in Paul's day that doubted Paul's, um, Paul's burden, Paul's feelings towards his kinsmen. 
they thought because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul kept making statements, right? He'd go to synagogues, he'd preach. You remember this in the book of Acts. He did it three times. Acts 13, Acts 18, and Acts 28. Paul preached to a group of Jews. They rejected the message. And he says he would shake his lap and say, your blood be on your own heads. I, I'm, I'm clean from, from, from the uh, responsibility of you guys. From henceforth, I go to the Gentiles. So Paul... His burden was obvious because when he'd show up in a town, he'd go straight to the synagogue usually and, and start trying to reach lost Jews in that town. But over and over again, they disappointed him, and he had a great sorrow. People accused him of hating the Jewish nation, of trying to do away with Jewish culture completely. You might remember in Acts chapter 21, that's, where, that's what the, the big fuss was about. And James recommended, now that you're in Jerusalem, why don't you go into the temple Take this vow. Just go along with the Jewish customs and culture. He wasn't asking Paul to contradict New Testament truth. Just show the people that you're not against the nation of Israel, that you don't hate Israel now that you're you know, focusing on Gentiles with your, your ministry. So Paul is trying to reassure his audience, I have, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not against the Jews. Paul understood where Israel fit in God's plan, both in the Old Testament and how they fit in the New Testament right now. Remember, in chapter 8, we focused in primarily about how the Spirit of God is working within the body of Christ. Uh, you might remember recently in Colossians, we saw this clearly. At Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, Let no man therefore judge you in, in respect of meats, drinks, holy days, Sabbath days, uh, for these are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So Paul knew those Jewish ordinances don't apply now. They will One day they, they'll have, have a different meaning and uh, they'll be applicable. But right now we're dealing with the body of Christ. Paul, it, he, he realizes that, but he, he also doesn't want people to go running off too far with this and say, okay, the body of Christ is God's primary focus, so now we just ignore Israel completely. That's not the right attitude. Paul says, I have a great burden for, for my nation, the, the, my physical heritage, my kinsmen. Now notice in verse 2, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. This is the same man who penned the now famous phrase in Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. So the command is, rejoice always, right? Uh, in Thessalonians, he says, rejoice evermore. But there, here, he says, I have a great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart. So which is it? Is he happy or is he sad? Does he have joy or does he have sorrow? And the answer is yes, yes. He has both. It is possible, right? And you know as well as I, we've all said things like this. There's a part of me that's very happy and there's a part of me that's very sad. Uh, to use something very time appropriate, this lockdown, oh, there are many things about this lockdown that really bother me. But at the same time, I can see some very good things that have come from it and I'm rejoicing in the extra time I have with my family, the extra time I have uh, with the Lord, the slower pace of life. So th th you can see how you can have mixed emotions, if I can put it that way. 
So Paul, he's, a, he's able to rejoice in the Lord and at the same time feel a great heaviness and sorrow for those people that don't have the Lord. Uh, verse 3, let me bring your attention back to this. Paul says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Notice how he words this, I could wish. Uh, he's presenting a hypothetical situation. Paul realizes that he cannot do what he's proposing in verse 3. He cannot trade places. You cannot say, or, or you cannot actuate, you, you can't make this happen. To, to look at a lost sinner that you care very much for and say, I'll tell you what, I'll trade places. I will take your sinful condition. You can have my salvation. I'll let you go to heaven in my place. You, you can't. That's not possible. But Paul says, my burden for my people is so great that if such a situation were possible, if I could do it, then I would. I would switch places. That is a tremendous burden. Those of you that have lost loved ones, you can appreciate such a statement, right? Uh, let, me, let me show you a verse. Let's come to Exodus chapter 32. Paul was not the first man to propose such a uh, situation. Exodus chapter 32. And tonight, because I'm not trying to uh, make it to the end of the chapter, I am going to spend a little, more, a little extra time on these verses and show you some uh, more cross-references. Exodus 32, verse 32. Now what we have here, the story you surely remember, Moses has been on the mount for 40 days, 40 nights. He's come down, he saw the golden calf through the Ten Commandments, the, the two tablets. And, um, and now they've, they've uh, destroyed the golden calf and we're coming to the end of the story. Moses is now praying to God because these people, God was very angry with these people, wanted to destroy them. Moses begged for mercy. <laughs> Moses came down and saw what they were doing, and Moses got very angry. And uh, he knows that they sinned a great sin. You see that in verse 30? Ye have sinned a great sin. What, what they did was, there are different levels to sin, by the way. And this is one of those verses that uh, shows you that. But they did something horrible. Now, Moses is saying, I peradventure I can make an atonement. Let me go back and talk to God on your behalf and see if I can work something out. And then verse 31, Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, verse 32, if thou wilt forgive their sin. Now, this is a very unique place in the Bible. It's the only place like it. There's no other verse in the Bible that has this in it. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and then a dash. That dash is not a translation choice. It's not like the Hebrew had a word and they couldn't put it into English or some other language. That, that's how it was originally worded. That's how it was written. That's, that's the manuscript evidence that we have on it. Moses didn't finish that sentence, right? We, we might put, I think it's called an ellipse at the end of the sentence. I think that's the right word where you have dot, dot, dot. Uh, Moses just, as he was going that, you know, making that statement, he realized there's no reason for God to forgive their sin. They don't deserve the forgiveness. So he says, yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, then he thought about it, 
I won't even finish that statement. And then he goes on to, to the, 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 the other option. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. He said, you can take my part out of the, what we would know as the book of life. He said, God, I'll, I'll, I'll take their place. Now, it wasn't possible. Moses couldn't do it. There's only one person that could do that. And that's what the Lord Jesus came to do. He, Jesus, because He had a virgin birth, He had no sinful nature, and He never uh, succumbed to the temptation of sin. You have a sinless man that can now take on the sins of others. There's no other man that can do that. Every other human, regardless of what their burden is or how much they would like to do it, they have their own sins that they have to deal with and they have to uh, pay for. So Moses... His heart's in the right place, but you can see verse 33, The Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So come back to Romans chapter 9. Uh, guys, this is the burden that we want to aim for when it comes to lost souls. If you don't mind just the, the word of exhortation, as it says in Hebrews, suffer the word of exhortation. Allow me to preach just for a minute. Um, how much do you care about your fellow South African? Right. All of them, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the language they speak, are you concerned about them? I'm, I'm concerned about them. And, and that's not to say that uh, I don't have to constantly renew my concern. It's not to say my heart never grows cold. Sometimes I have to really... I have to renew, right, the inner man and remember that there are lost souls, that there are people out there without the knowledge of God. And I'm not going to walk around weeping and, and moping all day because of it. I'm going to actively do something about it. I'm going to allow that, that compassion to move me. And I hope I'm not... But please understand why I'm saying what I'm saying is only to try to move you. But South Africa has been receiving missionaries for a long time. Wouldn't it be nice if South Africa could become a hub from which missionaries could go out? And I know that we do send missionaries out of this country. I, I, I know that. We've sent some out of our church. But it, it would make such a difference if, if you and I, in the body of Christ, if we would make a greater effort at re reaching the lost. And it starts with having a burden, with recognizing the great need all around us. I hesitate to make this statement because I don't want you to take it wrong, but there's really no reason that, that a missionary should come 10,000 kilometers and that you can't go 10 meters to your next door neighbor, right? You should have enough compassion to move you at least that far. Now let's keep working here in Romans 9 verse 4. Th thank you for allowing me to preach just for a moment. Verse 4, who are Israelites? So now he's going to describe his, his kinsmen. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants? and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. 
whose are the fathers? Now I'm going to stop there and just go through these one by one, make sure we understand all the terms. But Paul's just describing the nation of Israel, who are Israelites. So they, they come from the nation of Israel, to whom pertaineth the adoption. What do we mean by that? Come to Exodus chapter 14. Let me show you, uh, show you a verse here. Exodus 14 verse 22. When, when we speak of adoption, we're speaking, there's, there's a legality uh, that we have to recognize in the matter. It's not a biological birth, obviously. It's somebody, it's a, it's a father accepting parental responsibility, father or mother, but in this case a father, accepting parental responsibility for another person. In this case, God is accepting the people of Israel, the people that proceed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is adopting them. He is bringing them in as his children and accepting that parental responsibility. So, so it's an adoption. Uh, Exodus 14, verse 22. I said 14. I'm sorry. I meant 4. Exodus 4. Forgive me. I think I gave you the wrong reference. Exodus 4, verse 22. I was looking at Exodus 14. That verse didn't work. Exodus 4, verse 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Well, now Jesus is the firstborn, right? But in a different sense. God, as I just mentioned, accepted parental responsibility for this nation and now has the right to call them corporately his son or his firstborn. Just another quick cross-reference if you want to turn to it. Deuteronomy chapter 14 in verse 1, very simple verse, but uh, just to show you again how the Lord claimed parental responsibility. Deuteronomy 14.1, Ye, Yala, speaking to the nation of Israel, ye are the children of the Lord your God. And then goes on to explain how they should act like it. All right, so they've been adopted. Now, the next thing in Romans 9, he says, To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory, the glory. What, when we speak of glory, we're talking about the greatness of a thing or of a person. What made Israel so great? God paying special attention to them. God speaking to them and revealing uh, Himself and revealing His law to them. So we looked at this a little bit. We touched on it in Romans 3. What advantage then has the Jew much every way, but especially, Paul said, that, that they have the oracles of God, the words of God. So God giving them these great revelations, that was part of the glory. All right, now another thing in Romans 9, the next thing, the glory and the covenants. Now notice that the word is plural, the covenants, plural. The nation of Israel has more than one covenant that is applicable to it. Let me show you these covenants quickly. Let's get Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. There are actually three covenants that uh, the Bible specifically points out in connection to them. Now there are several other covenants in the Bible. You can look at the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant. These apply to Israel. The first one, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, or, this has another name, we also call it the Everlasting Covenant. Look at verse 7. Genesis 17, verse 7. 
God says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And you can see in the next verse, they were promised the land of Canaan. So this promise we've discussed actually quite a bit in Galatians and previously in Romans. This is part of the promise that God made to Abraham that extends to his seed. And that seed runs through Isaac. We're going to see that tonight in Romans 9 as well. But we know for sure that Israel will uh, obtain the land of Canaan. They will have their kingdom. God will reign over them. We, we are assured of that because God gave Abraham a promise. It is an everlasting covenant. Uh, it, it's not dependent on the works of the law. Now that being said, the next one is the Mosaic Covenant. And this is where God did, turn to uh, Exodus chapter 19. This is where God did put some conditions on them. Now remember, the law was a temporary thing. These, this uh, Mosaic Covenant, it was meant to be temporary. It was meant to keep the nation of Israel in line and in their land. So for each generation of Jews, it depended on if, if they kept these laws, God would allow them to stay in the land. They break the law, God kicks them out of the land. So that was the Mosaic Covenant. Ultimately, they're going to receive the kingdom because it was given as a promise. But we have this temporary law. Exodus chapter 19. Uh, let's get verse... Let's start at verse 4. Verse 4, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, later on in Exodus, just a couple chapters later, Exodus 24, Verse 6 and 7, uh, you can get verse 7. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. So that Mosaic covenant, as I said, it had a temporal purpose, and it was to keep them in line and in the land. All right, now come to Psalm chapter 89, and there's another covenant. And this one is very specific. It's the Davidic covenant. We call it the Davidic Covenant, obviously made with David. Psalm 89, and get verse 28. Psalm 89, verse 28. Psalm 89, verse 28. Forgive me, there's quite a bit to this context here, so I'm just going to jump right into the middle of it. Uh, God speaking, it says, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. So God made a promise to David that David's seed, verse 29, his seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven, which that seed is fulfilled in Christ. Christ being the son of David, right? That title, that messianic title. Uh, turn over to Isaiah chapter 55. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. Now, if we're moving a little too fast and you're not able to find the verses as quickly as I'm reading them, feel free to hit the pause button if you want and, uh, and look at the verses. But Isaiah 55, and let's get verse 3. It says here, Incline your ear and come unto me. 
Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So there's another reference to that, to that uh, Davidic covenant. And it is also an everlasting covenant because Christ, as we just read in Psalms, His, his days, His throne will endure forever. All right, so come back to Romans 9 now. We've covered the adoption, the glory, the covenants, plural, and the giving of the law. Now, this, I believe, fits in with the covenants. There's a bit of overlap, but we don't need to explain that uh, in any great detail. You understand what that is. God gave them the law there under the Mosaic covenant. And the service of God. Now, that gets even more specific. I believe what Paul's referring to there is the Levitical priesthood, right? The temple, the setup of the sacrifices, and everything that went with that. Uh, Paul might have had something greater in mind, but I believe he's specifically focusing in on that. Right? Gentiles have their own um, sages, their own shamans, the witch doctors. They had their religious rituals. God actually told Israel how to perform their sacrifices, which religious rituals would please him. So I think that's the service of God that we're referring to there. And then at the end, and the promises, the promises. I think that could be a very, it is a very broad category. The Old Testament is filled, hundreds of promises that God gave to that nation that he did not give to the other nations. Uh, however, I think when we talk about the promises, we're especially looking at the millennial kingdom and everything that goes with that. When you read through the prophets, that's where most of the promises are, are going to be fulfilled is when the Messiah comes and sets up the kingdom. All right, verse 5 says, Whose are the fathers? All right, what else sets Israel apart, makes them special? Uh, their, their forefathers. They have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when you, you read about the fathers, you're usually referring to those three men in, in a Jewish context. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That gives you the physical descendancy or heritage for the Messiah. As you can see in verse 5, Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? Who is over all? So Christ is over all. This is a truth that we uh, focused in in, on, on, in Colossians 1, that he should have the preeminence. But look how Paul worded this. Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. This is one of the strongest verses that you have in the New Testament for what we call the deity of Christ. This refers to Christ as God. Christ, uh, of whom Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Now, the way that you read it here, some people would argue that there's room in this to say, well, God the Father is the one who sent Christ, so we bless God the Father. We thank Him for sending His Son, and they, they would still see a, a separation. But there is room in the way that this verse is worded to understand it as Christ being called God, being equated with Him. So how do we know which way to take this? Well, we only need to look at other verses in the New Testament and see what Paul said about Christ and his status. If he is on the same level and equal with God, is he less than God? And we know from many other verses, especially Philippians chapter 2, right? 
uh, it says, when he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But then he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and so forth. Uh, so Paul, in his mind, Christ is equal with God. That tells me how to take Romans 9 and verse 5, that Christ is God. Uh, I usually, I wouldn't, I don't do this very often, but this verse, now, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why it happens like this, but many times when you pick up a, a newer translation for, for the English Bible, verses that would usually support the deity of Christ are either watered down, removed, or altered so much that you, you don't see the deity of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that the new translations don't teach it at all. I, I think you can still see it in, in the newer ones. Uh, however, this verse uniquely, this and there's, there's one other one in uh, Titus. In, in most new translations, you'll see that, that this verse, uh, they translate it in such a way that it makes the deity of Christ, the case for it, even stronger. So I, let me just read Romans 9, verse 5. I'm going to read from the ESV here. Uh, and forgive me, I can't see. The words are very small on this page. So It says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, the reason I, I read that to you, because some people would would say, well, let's go back to the Greek. Let's see if there's an alternate way of translating this that would maybe clarify and show us which side to fall on. I think by showing you that is another way to translate it. It's another way to word it. Christ, who is God. So I think it just reinforces what we can understand from the Bibles in front of us. All right, uh, verse 5, he ends up with amen. So he's finished that point. He's explained who Israel is. Now, verse 6. He says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So he's made the point that Israel is a great nation. They have a fantastic and impressive history. Does this mean that they are automatically qualified for salvation? Does this mean that God will accept anybody that comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And now he's moving on to show that they are, just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're automatically uh, part of God's eternal, let's say, his, his plan for salvation. You're not automatically saved. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. God made several, gave several warnings in the Old Testament. He told those Jews, if you guys, if, if you do certain things, you will be cut off from my people. Now, forgive me, I'm not going to turn you to all these verses. I counted them up. I, and this is just a small snippet. There's 21 verses I have on my paper. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That's where I stopped. 20, in 21 places, he said, if you do this, and then listed some sin, you'll be cut off from my people. So, we can't ignore those verses. You can't... Uh, you can't just say because they have an impressive history, they're automatically in. What about those verses where God says, but this and this and this, I'll punish you for that. I'll, I'll cut you off from my people. Uh, he says at the end of verse 6, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So 
just because you are of Israel, that means you come from Jacob, right? Jacob's new name or his other name was Israel. Just because you come from Jacob doesn't mean you qualify as a legitimate member of that nation, right? Just because you have physical circumcision doesn't make you a full-blown Jew in the eyes of God. Now, there's two verses I will show you on this. Uh, first, look at Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 and get verse number 26. Jeremiah 9 verse 26. And God says, um, say what, let's look at verse 25 as well. Jeremiah 9 verse 25. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab, and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. So God, right, He looks on the heart and He says, now you might have the physical descendancy that would, call, that would make you Jewish, but you don't have the heart to call yourself Jewish. Now turn to the New Testament, come back to Romans, get chapter 2, let me show you where Paul points this out as well. Romans 2, obviously we've covered this already, but just to remind you. Romans 2 verse 28. He's talking about what it means to be a real Jew. Romans 2 verse 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Right? You have the circumcision, you have the physical descendancy. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So in, in God's mind, we see it in Jeremiah, Paul understood it this way. And we see this in the preaching of John the Baptist and, and Jesus mentioned this as well, that the children from the east and the west, or people from the east and the west, Gentiles, will come into the kingdom while the children of the kingdom will be cast out because they were depending, right? They thought we're children of Abraham, we're in. And that's not how it works. There's more, God, there's other conditions to it. Let's come back to Romans 9, verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. They are not, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Verse 7, neither. So he's made a point about the descendancy from Jacob, and now he's going to scoot it back to Abraham. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But, now he's quoting from the Old Testament, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Paul is going to point out, and he's made this point in other places, that there are two lines that come from Abraham. You'll remember this in Galatians chapter 4, right? We, we had an allegory. Paul went back to the book of Genesis and said you have, you have Abraham, then you have the children of promise, through Isaac, and that's a type of saved people today that accept God's promise by faith for salvation. And then you have another line that proceeds from Abraham, that's the children of the flesh, that's Ishmael. Those are people that are depending on their own works. So th there's an allegorical aspect to what Paul's saying here. But he's also making a, a point about the historical uh, part of this, that just because you come from Abraham, that's not enough. It, it, you need more. You, you need to fall in line with God's plan, with His purpose, 
and do something with the promises that He made. In verse number 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, he's, he's working with that allegory, uh, that Isaac and Ishmael, those two parts, and, and it, it applies still today, right? If you are in the flesh, if you have not experienced that spiritual circumcision that comes with salvation, then you're not a, a child of God. Uh, now, remember, all of what we've learned in Galatians earlier on, in Romans, these two systems, right? If you're depending on the law, the works of the law, or if you're depending on the promise and faith and grace, all of everything we've talked about there is going to be applicable to this. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. Now, he's going to show that in the heritage, in the uh, history of Israel, God gave promise after promise. And the reason that God, we can look at Israel and say that they are God's chosen people is not because of their behavior. It's because God made promises to them. In verse 9, for this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. This was a promise you can read about it in Genesis chapter 18. Paul's simply pointing that out to say that the nation of Israel was founded and formed and its basis was on a promise, not their, their works. Verse 10, and not only this, so he's going to move another generation forward, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Now we get a parenthesis. I'm going to read through it. We'll explain it in just a moment. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. You see the emphasis here. He's saying, guys, it's, it's not a matter of, of the works of the flesh. You know, what you do. It's a matter of God's promise. That's, that's how we know things are going to work out. Because God gave His word. Verse 12, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. So in verse 9, Paul points out with Abraham and Sarah, there was a promise given, and then Isaac was born. Now you have two lines that proceed from that. Isaac and Ishmael. And then if you move it another generation, Another promise was given. While Rebekah was pregnant, God gave a prophecy in this case and said, The elder, verse 12, shall serve the younger. And then we have two lines. We have Esau. We have Jacob. We have a picture of, of, of somebody in the flesh, not born again, Esau. We have a picture of somebody under the grace or promise of God, Jacob. Now, I want to spend just a few moments in verse 11 because it generally, um, well, it generates quite a few questions. This, this parentheses, this information is meant simply to emphasize why the nation of Israel will always be able to, to say, we are God's chosen people. And, and it's because God started off with that nation by giving them promises. He did not base it off of their works. Now, verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So this word election, this is where a lot of the confusion generally comes in. 
God chose these people. Now that we don't deny, right? Everybody will agree with that. These are God's chosen people. God's purpose would stand according to election. Why did God choose these people? That's the question we have to answer. Did God unconditionally choose them? Now, some people will look at this verse and say, before they had done anything, so before they had ever come into existence, and then people will, I think, take it one step too far and say, before the foundation of the world, God randomly or arbitrarily, for no reason, unconditionally, whatever word you want to use, He chose these people. And because God chose them, that's the way it's going to be. And everything works out according to the way God planned it. Now that's how a lot of folks would approach this verse. That's how they understand election. We have to first establish, though, does God, does He randomly or arbitrarily just choose certain people to include and make part of His plan and His promise and then exclude others just for no reason at all. Well, let's keep reading. In verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, loved and hated, uh, this has to do with putting one first and the next one second, right? Uh, Jesus said, you can't have two masters. You'll love the one, hate the other, hold to the one, despise the other. So God gave the promise to Jacob, not Esau. And in so doing, he loved Jacob, hated Esau because of, of that that ordering one above the other. Now, but why? Why did God choose Jacob? Did He just choose him because He did? Because God wanted to? Did He love him for just, just because He wanted to love him? Why did God choose him? Verse 14, you can see the question that Paul comes to. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. This is the question that Paul knew would come up by saying these things and acknowledging that God promised that, that the, the promised seed, the Messiah, the kingdom, all of that would happen through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not through Ishmael, not through Esau. God promised beforehand, I will establish all of, all of these promises through these men. Is God allowed to do that? Can he just pick and choose randomly? Some people might understand it that way and say, well, these, God's not rewarding them for any good thing they, they did. He just, God made a plan. He had a purpose and boom, it's just going to happen. But is that right? And Paul's answer to that is God forbid. There's not, God did not randomly or arbitrarily say, okay, I pick you and not you. Because then why are we punishing Esau? Why, why is Ishmael cast out? That's not fair if, if you're just going to reject them because you just wanted to. And Paul wants to make sure that people understand God was not unrighteous when He gave these promises. There is a reason God chose Isaac. There's a reason He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, let, let me show you a little bit about these, the, the reasons for this. Uh, first of all, let's come to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to talk for a moment about election, just in general. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and verse 2, which, by the way, that's the attendance code for tonight, 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Now, this obviously, Peter is writing to a New Testament crowd, and he says this, 1 Peter 1 verse 2, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that, that's all we, we need to read. I, there's a lot more to the verse, but the point I'm making is this, election, God's choosing it is according to something. It's not arbitrary. It's not just out of the blue, random. People get chosen based on God's foreknowledge. God knows what people are going to do, what people are going to choose, what kind of person, what, kind, what manner of person, what manner of nation Israel would be. And it's because of that, based on His foreknowledge, that God chooses certain people. So there's no unrighteousness. You can't say, God, you're not being fair. You chose him and not me for no reason. There was a reason. Now, here, here's, here's the problem. People say, but if, if God knows what I'm going to choose, well, then that means that it's set in stone. I don't have a choice. I've heard that so many times. If God already knows what's going to happen, then that means there's nothing I can do about it. But wait a minute. Think about the statement. God knows what I'm going to choose, therefore I don't have a choice. God knows what I'm going to choose. Now just think about that statement. God knows what I'm going to choose. Do you hear two parts to this? God's omniscience. God knows everything. And there's free will. He knows what I'm going to choose. I still have a choice. Now, the fact that God is at the end looking backwards and can see how it all turns out, guys, that just means that He's God. That just means that He's God. That does not mean, just because God knew what was going to happen, that doesn't mean that He made it happen. Now, take your Bible. Come to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Why did God choose Abraham? You say, well, God can do whatever He wants. Um, no, He can't. No, He can't. You say, but wait a minute, Brother Mike. Isn't that blasphemy? God, everything's possible with God. Not unrighteousness. It, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Some people would look at what Paul was explaining in Romans 9 and say, wait a minute. God just randomly gave promises? That's not right. You can't do that. And Paul's going to point out, no, no, no. There were conditions. They were elect according to foreknowledge. God knew what kind of man Abraham, Abraham would be. He knew what kind of man Jacob would be compared to Esau. So that's why he chose one and not the other. So God's election, His choosing, is according to something. It is conditional. It's not unconditional. Genesis chapter 18, let's get verse number... Well, let's start at verse 17. Genesis 18, verse 17. Now, forgive me, I don't want to forget it. You know, this idea of God can do whatever He wants because He's God. God can't lie. When God makes a promise, He can't deny Himself. There are several limitations that God, I want to say, puts on Himself, but it's not really putting it on Himself. It's just His nature. 
it's because he's God that there are certain boundaries, certain things he will not do. Uh, and being unrighteous, choosing for no, doing things to people for no good reason, that's not God. That's not how he operates. All right, Genesis 18, let's get verse 17. Uh, yeah. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely, surely, surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. God knew that was going to happen. He knew it. He knew it. Does that mean that he made it happen? Did God, did God set it up and pre predestinate all of these decisions on Abraham's behalf? There's no verse of Scripture that would indicate he did. But did God know what was going to happen? Yes. God knew what Abraham would choose, and that's why God chose him. That's why he could trust him. Look at verse 19. Watch the wording. For, see the word for, very important. For, that's because, for I know him. How do I know it's going to work out? How do I know it's sure? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Now, now look at the verse again. I want you to see it clearly. For I know him. God knew him. He knows he knows that Abraham will command his children and his household after him. That they shall keep the way of the Lord, do justice and judgment. That hadn't happened yet. That's future. So this is knowledge before it happens. This is foreknowledge. God chose, Israel. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He gave them promises because he knew what kind of people could come from, from this heritage. And that's why He chose them. So the idea of God just arbitrarily, randomly, you know, just you and not you, you and not you, that's not how God works. Now, with this, right, I believe it, it would be a good idea to... I want to show you a verse or two that does, that does not only indicate, but I believe flat out proves that we are able to make choices, right? Look at Proverbs chapter 1. The idea that God has already chosen everything for us, if that were the case, then God really has no right to punish us. If God's the one that planned it, set it up, then why hold me responsible or anyone? Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 28. Proverbs 21. I, I, proper, I'm sorry, Proverbs 1. I'm sorry. You know, let, let's start reading at... Uh, 24. Proverbs 1, 24. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. He, and then he goes on and talks about how he's going to punish them. Look at verse 28. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They had a choice. God made himself available they said no. Now, did God know they would choose incorrectly? Yes. But in order for God to know that was going to happen, He had to give them a legitimate offer. He had to make Himself known and the truth known so that they could turn it down. Look at uh, Isaiah 66. 
It's not that God wanted them to turn it down. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right? People say, well, the will of God's always done. No, it's not. I wish it was, but it's not. God is not willing that any should perish. If the will of God was always done, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, the will of God is for all men to be saved. But obviously that's, that doesn't happen. Isaiah 66, get verse 3. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth, in, uh, burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Now watch this phrase. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. They chose. They chose their own ways. Verse 4, God said, I, will all, uh, I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. Now, now watch how God is reacting to the choice they made. Because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. They had a choice. They chose wrong. God reacted to it. All right, come back to Romans chapter 9. Let's just try to get a couple other points made here. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Well, you know, forgive me. Let's just move back to verse 11. Make sure we get that right. For the children being not yet born, right, neither having done any good or evil. When did God pronounce this prophecy about the, the elder shall serve the younger? Right? God knew that Jacob would end up with the birthright. The elder shall serve the younger. That prophecy was made while the kids were in the womb. Right? So there's, there's nothing that says it was an eternal decree. Now, God, he, he did know, right? He is, God inhabits eternity, so He knew how this was going to turn out. But He pronounces this prophecy before they're born, so that He could have waited until after they came out of the womb and after they had done everything. But God, God said it beforehand so that people know this is going to happen by promise. It's not a matter of their works neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So God gives these promises so that, so that the kingdom is something that they can be assured of. The same thing is true for us. God gives us the promise of eternal life. That's how we can have assurance of salvation. It's not based on what we're doing. It's based on what He said He would do. Malachi 3.6, great verse for this. I am the Lord. I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If it was based on Israel's behavior, they would have never received the kingdom. But He gave it to them as a promise. So that way, according to God's choice, because He knew what kind of people they'd be, the promise is sure. Alright, so verse 15, For He saith to Moses, and we're just going to get two other verses here. For He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Again, you can take just verse 15 and 16 and say, you see, God can have mercy on whoever He wants to. And He'll show compassion just randomly on whoever He wants to. Um, so it's just up to God. It has nothing to do with us. 
I think, I think what's happening when you approach it like that, you're just taking verse 15 and 16 and not considering all the other verses about mercy and compassion. God will have mercy on whoever he wants, but he has told us what kind of people he will have mercy on. And if you would like to have that mercy, you can fall in line with what God has promised. Now, now let me show you this in Psalm chapter 18. Psalm chapter 18. And we'll, I'll show you how you can qualify for mercy. It's not a random thing. God has already decided beforehand, predetermined, predestined, that if you want to have mercy, right? Here's the plan for it. If you want to fall, if you want to receive my mercy, then you fall in line with the plan that I made. Psalm 18, verse 25. David writes here, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. Do you see how it's a reactionary thing? God says, all right, you, if you want my mercy, then one way you qualify for that is you show some mercy. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. If you want the mercy of God, it is found in Jesus Christ, right? Outside of that, you're not going to find mercy. Back in Romans 9, verse 16, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. You can't say, but God, what about my plan? I have my will, my purpose. Why don't you just accept the way I want to do it? Or him that runneth, look how hard I'm trying. God, all this effort, surely you're going to cut me some slack. And God says, no, I have plans. I have a purpose. And if you want to find mercy and compassion from me, you need to fall in line with the way I have set it up. I know that my plan will work. So even though the person might have the best of intentions, right? At the end of the day, it matters. Uh, what matters is if they fall in line and in agreement with what God has, has said. All right, so that's as far as we're going to make it for tonight. Um, generally, this topic it comes with all sorts of questions, so please feel free. If you have anything, if you want to send it to me by email or WhatsApp, let me take just a moment. And just, I'm just seeing it. I, forgive me. I, I can't see unless I focus in on it. Um, yeah, I see somebody has commented, God can do whatever He wants. He, he can, but as I've mentioned, within the limitations of holiness within the limitations of his nature. When God makes a promise, then he is going to be faithful. He cannot deny himself. Uh, but obviously, he's not going to do something unrighteous like we saw in verse number 14. All right, so I hope this has helped. Next week, we'll dive into to Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart. And uh, I believe that we'll see uh, in that passage, in, in that um, portion of Scripture even further, how God is reacting to the choices that Pharaoh made. But I hope this has helped. I hope this has been clear. Um, I am going to restart it just in case there's another question that maybe didn't pop up because of the uh, technology. And then we'll close in a word of prayer if there's no other questions. So let me just restart now. All right. I do see a couple other things popped up here. So he cannot do whatever, cannot do whatever he wants to do. God's permission to attack Job. That's true. Yes, Satan did. Satan has to work within the confines, the boundaries that God uh, puts out there.
Okay. All right. If anybody does have a question, though, you're more than welcome to send it to me privately. We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for your help with a very difficult uh, subject. And uh, Lord, there, there does seem to be quite a bit of confusion over the matter. Lord, by all means, we, I don't want to speak um, incorrectly when it comes to your nature and how you operate. Lord, we know that uh, you do have plans that extend all the way back in eternity. And uh, you do know what's going to happen. The Father, I also, as best I see it, you've given us the privilege of making choices. Help us, Lord. Help us direct our steps. Continually teach us and guide us so that we can put each foot right where it needs to be, each word in its proper place. Father, we want to do, have a life that's pleasing with you, pleasing to you. Thank you for your help tonight. Please, Father, have your hand upon us and bring us back together again Tuesday so we can learn more from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.